Attention Medicare recipients and anyone turning 65, Medicare has approved new benefits not included with original Medicare and older Medicare Advantage plans. You may not be getting all of the benefits you're entitled to, including in-home aids, telephone appointments with your doctors, home-delivered meals and prescriptions. These benefits may be available and it's a free call to enroll. The new plans may also offer free eyeglasses, free hearing aids, free wellness visits, and gym memberships. Call the Medicare Benefits line now. It's easy. Call 800-518-2281. 800-518-2281. Find out if you're eligible for new benefits like meal and prescription delivery, in-home aids, and telemedicine. Some plans may have a $0 monthly premium or zero copays for big out-of-pocket savings. Not all Medicare Advantage plans are alike. The new plans have more benefits for many people. Call 800-518-2281. 800-518-2281. In these trying times, many people are depressed and lost because the future of our society is up in the air. If you're turning to substance abuse because you're feeling there is no hope, we have a way for you to see the light. SAD, or Stop Abusing Drugs, is a nonprofit organization that will help you at no cost to you stop abusing drugs. Founded by Tony Navarchi, SAD will refer you to the top detox doctors in your area. SAD will pay every and any cost for you, including doctor visits, counseling, and medications. If you need help, SAD is there for you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you or a loved one needs help, or if you have a suggestion or idea for Tony, you can reach out to him by calling 844-493-3386. That's 844-493-3386. Or email Tony at Tony at SadDetox.com. That's Tony at S-A-D-D-E-T-O-X dot com. This Veterans Day and every day, remember those who have sacrificed and continue to sacrifice themselves for your freedom. Take a moment to thank the brave men and women who have served. Our sponsor, New View Auto Glass of Riverside, is the premier expert in RV glass replacements. For a free quote, call 951-316-1778. Again, 951-316-1778. Learn more, visit newviewautoglass.com. That's the family over at New View Auto Glass, thanking our nation's veterans. Tahibo Tea Club's original Pure Pau de Arco Tahibo Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea can be tremendously beneficial for healthy people because it helps build the immune system and can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease. A one-pound package of tea is $34.95 plus shipping. To order, please visit TeheboTeaClub.com. Tehebo is spelled T like Tom, A-H-E-E-B like boy, O, then continue with the word T, and then the word club. The complete website is TeheboTeaClub.com. Or call us at 818-610-8088, Monday through Saturday, 9 to 5, California time. That's 818-610-8088. It's okay if you're wondering how the COVID-19 vaccine got here so fast. It was record time after all. And when you're ready, here's your answer. No steps were skipped. No shortcuts were taken. Years of research and determination paid off. Let's get you there. Let's get to immunity. Learn more at vaccinateall58.com or call 833 422 4255. Brought to you by the California Department of Public Health. I always hear from our clients who hired another firm that they wish they'd hired DNA Financial first. Don't have regrets about your IRS tax case. Just hire the best in the first place. One owed $150,000 to the IRS and had spent thousands on another firm. We stopped the levies, negotiated a payment plan, and had their penalties forgiven. And while every case is different, we guarantee that we'll find your perfect resolution and get it done right. For a free consultation, call us at 866-201-0156. That's 866-201-0156. Then you can say, DNA, DNA did, did right, right by me. me. 
Pay honor to our men and women in the military as they risk their lives for our freedom. Remember them this Veterans Day. Our sponsor, Redlands Complete Auto Repair, is family-owned, serving you with over 20 years of experience. Your complete car care center. From engine work to oil changes, call the experts. 909-307-9599. Again, 909-307-9599. Or stop by 1647 West Redlands Boulevard, Suite L. Offering 10% discounts to veterans. That's Redlands Complete Auto Repair on the air, saluting our troops and veterans. K-C-A-A. Welcome to the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show, created and hosted by Scott Knudsen, to explore the crossroads of horses and the business world. On today's show, Scott visits with photographer, documentary, and commercial filmmaker, Bud Force. Now here's your host, Scott Knudsen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. I'm your host, Scott Knudsen. Thank you so much for joining us. Whether you're listening to us on the radio station KCAA, the NBC affiliate out in California, or watching our podcast on one of our many platforms, we appreciate it. Today's Cowboy Entrepreneur Show, we have a very special guest. It's going to be a fun show. Bud Force is on the show. Bud, welcome to the show. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. So Bud is a commercial filmmaker. He's a photographer, and he's lived an incredible life. So I can't wait for... uh, for him to share his knowledge and some of his stories. So, uh, Bud, where were you born? I was born in Fort Worth, Texas. Awesome. Awesome. But you were raised in Nevada, I think I read. Yes, sir. My dad was in the military, so we traveled around quite a bit, left Texas when I was a baby, and we moved to Guam. My dad flew B-52s, oh, lived man. in Guam for a few years, and then we moved to uh, around Lake Tahoe, California, in the Truckee area, and I grew up in the Sierra Nevada mountains until I was 14 and we moved back to Texas to Weatherford, Texas. Very cool. So what was it like growing up in Nevada in the, in the mountains? Man, it was, um, it was pretty neat. We backed up to the Truckee river. Uh, we were about 30 feet from the Truckee river and on the other side of the river was just national forest and BLM land. So, Oh man, what a place to grow up in. It was amazing. Uh, I had a dog out there, a Labrador, and we would just go out in those hills and those mountains and, and spend all day. So it was a it was a really neat way to grow up and something I wouldn't trade for the world. Oh man, and Truckee is a pretty neat community as well. It's really touristy, but it's a neat community. Well, it, it sure is. It's changed a lot since I lived there back in. I think we moved in 1993, and I went back a few years ago, and yeah, it's pretty touristy now. Yeah, yeah, that's cool, man. Um, so, so growing up in Texas, when you came back in your late teenage years, um, what was the transition like going, you know, from the Nevada and the mountains to back to Texas? Well, it was definitely a huge change. When I lived in Nevada, I was skiing a lot. I was actually on a youth race team. And so I was really busy with all of that. Uh, but I wanted to move to Texas. That's where my grandparents were. And I had this idea of Texas in my mind uh, that was a bit romantic. So we came back. My parents bought 50 acres. They got some horses and cattle. And we moved right in the middle of kind of ranch land or cutting horse land there between Weatherford and Granbury. And it really spurred my love of, of agriculture and, and ranching. Oh, wow. That's a great horse country. A lot of great trainers up there. Cow country, too, but lots of good cutting horses. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so, uh, so, did you stay with cutting horses or did you go into a different discipline? Uh, really, I, when I was growing up, I was riding recreationally just there at my parents' place. I started working for some local area ranchers, and then I started working for some cutting horse places whenever I was 16, 17 years old, and kind of hopped around loping horses at, at different cutting horse ranches until, you know, really through college. Well, that, what a great foundation, though. I, I think that's so important just to jump, not to jump, but to go from one trainer to another trainer, ride different horses, and get that foundation, find out which way you want to go. And you mm-hmm. can always learn from them. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I learned a little bit here and there from everybody. So that's awesome. That's awesome. So, so you went into rodeo, (laughs) which is cool. Yeah. About the same time when I was, uh, I think 16 years old, I started or 15 years old, I started riding steers and then that went into bulls around 15, 16. And then I rode until I was about 20 Rode bulls until I was about 20. 
So what was that like uh, telling the parents, hey, I think I want to start riding bulls or at least start on steers and go up to bulls? You know, they weren't super supportive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, I've seen a lot of parents who are super supportive of their kids riding bulls. Of course, I only have one daughter. Uh, I don't think she's going to be riding bulls. But if I, if I had some boys and they were wanting to ride bulls, uh, it'd be a hard thing probably for me to get behind as well. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I understand, man. We've been there and, and I have one daughter as well. And I, you know, I don't, you know, even the young colts I get, I don't want her to ride. So um, I understand right. the parents' view on that for sure, um, for sure. So, so uh, what made you stop riding bulls? I had a bad wreck uh, in Morgan Mill. It. Yeah, it was a summertime deal, uh, kind of a three-part buckle series. It was in between rodeos, and I went to a practice pin there in Morgan Mill and uh, got on a relatively easy bull, but I got hung up in the make a long story short I got stomped pretty bad and they life flighted me to Harris Hospital and I spent about six months in a wheelchair before I was back on my feet and about a full year recovering and that pretty much ended my my rodeo career gotcha so so I, I guess for people watching this or listening to it on KCAA um, for somebody that's been in a wreck whether it's a bull ride or whether it's car or whatever, horse wreck, you know, and you're sitting in that wheelchair, what fueled you to get out of the chair to um, start your amazing career in a different direction? Yeah, there was, there was no real choice. I mean, it was certainly <laughs> challenging. Yeah. I mean, it, was, it was definitely a challenging time. I, I really didn't know the direction I was going to head afterward because I just, that, that was the path I was on or that right. I thought I was on. And so when that happened, it took me a few years to figure out, okay, well, here's what I think I'm going to do next. Uh, I was going to Weatherford College when I got hurt, and I ended up going back to school. I took some time off and, and went to work, kind of hopped around at some different jobs, and then went back to school at Weatherford, uh, finished up there, and then went to Texas A&M University and majored in journalism uh, because I thought, well, I'll, I'll be a writer. And I'd always enjoyed writing. And, and so, you know, I kind of followed that career trajectory for a while, which eventually derived into photography and filmmaking down the road. Amazing. Amazing. So, so why did you choose A&M? My grandfather had gone to A&M. Uh, he played on the 39 national championship football team. The only year that A&M has won the national championship Very so cool. far. Very and cool. so I kind of grew up with this, you know, idea of Texas A&M as being the best university. My dad was a big fan of A&M. My whole family was. And so when it was time to choose a, a four-year university, that's where I ended up going. Very cool. Very cool. So so for the kids out there, or not even kids, just anyone wanting to go back to school um, with journalism or to write, what's some advice you can give them? You know, why did you pick, and I, I know you said you like to write, but journalism, uh, you know, you're going from a wheelchair and riding bulls and you're like, man, I want to become a rider. I've always liked it. And then you jumped to journalism. How did you do that? How did you say, I'm going to commit to that? Like I say, I mean, I when I was in school at Weatherford, even when I was riding, some of my favorite classes were my English classes in high school. I always liked creative writing and going into a&M, in fact, my original degree was agriculture journalism. They had a program there for that was that cool. specific. And so that's the program I entered under. And then I thought, well, other than it be limited primarily to agriculture, maybe I'll just do a general journalism degree. And so that was the transfer into it. And even though I was in journalism and not in the ag program specifically, I, I was interning for Texas Cooperative Extension writing the Texas crop and weather report and kind of these little articles on everything from chiggers to um, you name it. I mean, whatever it may be, right. specific topics, uh, too much rain specific topics, flood related topics. And, and so I, I, that kept my love going and my, my enjoyment of it. But that's how I went into journalism from weather. Very cool. Very cool. Very cool. And once again, it sounds like kind of like when you were starting to ride, you're riding from dif different trainers in different places, you know, and that kind of got you to a certain level. Well, now you're writing different articles about anything and that probably helped with your writing. 
Sure. No, it was, I really enjoyed my internship there and it helped shape me, you know, as far as moving forward. No doubt that, about it. That is awesome, man. That is awesome. So- Scott will be right back with more from Bud Force. Hi, I'm Scott Knutson, host of the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. Today, we're going to talk about something I'm really passionate about. Those that know me know I love my coffee. Those that don't, now you know I do. And we've been working on this for several months, and we we wanted to get it just right. And we don't put our name on anything unless we feel 100% certain it's it's the best product we can get. And uh, we've done it. I really believe we've done it. We've created a coffee line, 13 great flavors. I'm going to show you three of them. We have K-Cups in all 13 flavors. Here's a Jamaican Me Crazy. It's just a really great coffee. Everyone has great logos. It has a brand, the same brand that's on our horses, our trailers. You know that brand means something and we wouldn't put it on here if it wasn't good coffee. We have whole bean. This is a great Honduran blend and uh, it's a whole bean coffee. We have whole bean in all 13 flavors. And then we have a ground coffee. Uh, this is a really great one. My wife and I really like this a lot, loved it. So we named it after our daughter, Hades Glenn. Everyone has the packaging and the logo of the show, our brand, and I hope you like it. I, I really believe you will. And we're going to have more flavors coming out soon. We're going to have the pumpkin spices, and then we're going to go to peppermint after that. And please send us your suggestions as well. You can find it at cowboyentrepreneur.shop. Think coffee shop, cowboyentrepreneur.shop. Thank you so much. So something really cool I read about it, and, and I, I hope you expand on it is the Texas Tax Force One. And, and I haven't heard of this before, and I was uh, really interested if you could share that with the audience. What that sure. experience was like. I mean, I couldn't imagine. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. So when I graduated from AM, I went to work for Texas Task Force One which is one of 28 federal urban search and rescue teams under the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Texas has two teams. Uh, most states have one. Uh, of course, not every state. Like I said, there's only 28 teams. But I joined Texas Task Force One. And the way I would describe the team is to a layperson is whenever you watch the news and you see a big natural disaster or a man-made disaster, Uh, The most recent one that comes to mind, of course, would be the hurricanes, but also the building collapse in Miami-Dade. When you see the white helmets out there working, usually in blue or gray uniforms, those are the federal task forces. And so that's what Texas Task Force One was. And so I joined that team, went to uh, years of training and uh, and began deploying with the team. My first deployment was Hurricane Katrina in, in New Orleans. What a first first call, you know? Yeah, in New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. Goodness, you're trading trading one adrenaline rush from riding bulls to another. I mean, just to go in and help people. Um, what what was it like when you put your foot down the first time in New Orleans for Hurricane Katrina? Uh, it was absolutely surreal. You know, the entire city was without electricity. Uh, there was devastation, of course, everywhere. You couldn't drive anywhere, so we were in Zodiac boats. Um, Can you explain the- what that is? What, what's a Zodiac oh, boat? Like those black rafts you see on the Navy SEAL commercials. Okay. Like those are Zodiacs. Okay. Uh, so we'd be in those kind of black rafts and and go around and and rescue as many people as you possibly can. But whenever the sun would set, you'd see the skyline of the city. There were several chemical fires all over the city, you know, with plumes of smoke, and you'd see UH-60 helicopters and and what have you. And it was just a surreal, uh, like, picture of of what like Armageddon really at that point in time. It was. It was insane. And so that whenever we got out there, that's the very first thing I remember. And then we stayed there for nearly a month off and on. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. And you wrote a book about being in in urban search and rescue, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, I sure did. Texas Task Force One Urban Search and Rescue. So Uh, so we're going to put the cover up. So if somebody wants to purchase that, I I can only imagine what's in it. So so you're you're doing the search and rescues and and I guess the journalism came through in you or did you just say, I got to get these stories out for people to read? 
My uh, my role with that was in basically in uh, in recon in a way. I was was what they call a technical information specialist. So I would go out with the first squads on a deployment, and I would gather photo and video intelligence that we would send back to our base of operations in Austin, and they would determine okay here's where we need to put a squad here's another area where we need to put a squad in this grid this grid what have you and and so that was my role so as i did that even though at the time i was shooting photography from a purely informational perspective uh not an artistic perspective i still enjoyed the act of shooting photos and being in that type of environment that is uh, even though it's it's a devastating environment it's still of course visually rich because of the nature of what it is and so i started shooting pictures of of the disasters and then where we trained which was in college station at the texas a&m university fire training field the largest one in the world there's live fire crops so when we weren't on deployments i was shooting a lot of photography and video of these live action fires and people training on these things and just really enjoyed it and spent a lot of time with media and learning about photographers and videographers. And and that's where that transition happened into the visual arts. And I stayed with the team full time until 2006, remained with the team until 2010 on a reserve status and continued to go to deployments, but left full-time status in 2006 and became a a full-time freelance photographer at that time. And then I've been independent ever since. So you're an entrepreneur. I'd like to think so. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Maybe some advice you can give to to everyone that's either listening or watching. But so so what was it like? So you're transitioning to start your own business, to be be a photographer, photojournalist, what was your first job or how did you start? Because there's so many people out there that want to make that jump. What did you do? Sure. Yeah. So at the time we had the yellow pages still. Mm-hmm. So I went through every page of the yellow pages and saw companies or even media outlets that I thought, okay, this might be a good fit. I'll reach out to them. And then, you know, we had the search engines at that time. They weren't what they are today, but I used them and I found all the publications I could possibly find in Dallas, Fort Worth. That's where I was moving to. That's where my girlfriend had moved, who's my wife now. Very cool. And um, so I reached out to all these publications and surprisingly several wrote me back. And I went in for a few interviews and and eventually started working uh, around the area and just built on it from there. Very cool. So, so what was the first one that you went to work for that said, Hey, come on up for an interview? Yeah, it was the, uh, it was actually the Dallas business journal. And we had an interview scheduled, a huge ice storm came into DFW and uh, I lived in Fort Worth and the interview was in Dallas, which is an hour drive on a good day. And with the ice storm, I thought it'd be two or three hours. So I gave myself three hours of time and I left the house at maybe 5 a.m. or something. I think my interview was eight and drove in this ice storm. And it was me and like 10 other people, I think on the roads at that time, looking back on it, hindsight's 2020. And it was, it was just super unintelligent to do that. (laughs) Show some grit though. (laughs) Well, I couldn't reach them, you know, to tell them, hey, I can't come in. And so I was worried I'd miss my big opportunity, my big break with the Dallas Business Journal. And so I was driving down Interstate 20. And I remember at one point in time, I was driving and my truck lost control. And I was going really slow. Everybody was maybe 10 miles an hour at a max. But I remember doing a 180. But I just kept going at the same speed, the same direction but I was facing everybody behind me. And then that truck just went back straight. (laughs) And for some reason I kept on driving. (laughs) I got there. Of course, nobody was there. And uh, so I stayed till it warmed up a little bit and drove home and, and let them know. And, and the lady said, all right, we don't need to have an interview. Here's your first assignment. Very cool. So she gave me an environmental portrait to go shoot. And I thought I'd, absolutely made it i was i was getting paid 
to go shoot a photograph. And that was the start of it. That, that's such a cool story. Story. It just shows the grit and determination of get, having that opportunity and then showing up at a big facility and you're the only one there. And, and <laughs> that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um, so, so with the transition, you know, you're going from the yellow pages. Now you're we're going to drones and new media. So how do you, every year, it seems like there's new ways to do things, better ways, quicker things. How do you keep adjusting to stay on top of the game? Because some people struggle with that. Some people are afraid of it. Um, change isn't necessarily bad, but it's changed so much in that environment. How do you do that? It's a challenge. It's a, it's a challenge to stay on top of all the technological aspects. Right. If you are a, um, I mean, every industry probably has new products coming out each year, but if you're a roofer, let's say, or a painter or something along those lines, there may be new roofing materials every 10 years, but it's not this continual right. changing of the landscape every couple of months or every year. We buy new cameras almost every year oh my goodness. because the technological progression is just skyrocketing on what these things can do. You know, we used to shoot standard definition and then it went to high definition, 4K. Now there, you know, you need the 8K camera. Clients are asking for that new uh, audio capabilities. So it's just old fashioned research. You know, you, you have to stay on the ball as far as the technological aspects of it. But at the same time, you have to hone your like baseline craft. You know, you can become a master electrician and let's say the basics of electricity don't really change. Right. But in this field, you have to really hone your craft and at the same time, stay on that technological curve to be relevant. Because I can't really go out with an old fashioned Super 8 camera, except for, in, you know, a very specific project and and expect to make a living you know i have to be using the latest and greatest just like everybody else out there so right well that that's tough so what what's a tip maybe give somebody that's trying to get better uh do how do you how do you research something like that you just stay on the internet and just look for new things do you go to trade shows do you just call um other people in the field or what what's something they can do to help them get to that next level probably all the above yeah I mean, I certainly go to trade shows. I go to workshops. You know, I have friends in the industry, of course. Uh, so we chat about the new cameras. I think once you're in it and you're working it, you know, it just happens by default. But one thing I would say, too, is not to get so wrapped up that you you can't work or you don't feel like you can work because you don't have the latest and greatest, you know, with photography and and videography, but specifically photography, you've only got two elements. You've got the composition, and then you have the exposure and the technical elements. But the composition doesn't change, whether you're using a phone or you're using the best camera in the world. And that's a huge part of the game. So whether you're shooting still photos or video, I would say if you don't have the latest and greatest for whatever reason, you can still work on your composition you can still be creative with what you have. And one of my sayings is just do the best you can with what you have to work with. Because we would all like to be working with more, I suppose, no matter what it is we're doing. And so if you just do the very best you can with what you have to work with, you'll progress in that manner until you've got something better to work with and you'll be that much further ahead of the game. I love that, man, so much. And, and I think that's someone that, you know, I, I hear from people that say, hey, I don't have this. I can't compete or I can't move. But what you're saying is you can move forward. Just get really good at what you're using. And as you get better, the tools are just going to get better naturally. Totally. And that's how I look at life overall, Absolutely. whether I'm riding a horse. I don't ride the best horses. I can't afford the best horses. Uh, my truck, I mean, whatever it may be, my, my family, I just do the very best I can with, with, with what I have to work with, you know, and, and everybody's got something. Yeah, I, I love that so much. And, and that's why I was so excited to have you on the show, because, you know, you're sitting in a wheelchair from a bull riding injury, and, and you're looking at the next thing. 
you know, you're, you're looking in the yellow pages for a job and there's an ice storm, you get there. You're always looking for the next way to get there, but as you're going down the road, you're still getting better. You're not skipping steps. And, and I think that's so important. Um, so thanks for sharing that. So, so uh, let's, let's go to film. So you're, you're, you're the founder and, and uh, co-partner in two film companies or production companies, Ultralight Films and 1922 Films. Um, so how did you make the transition from uh, being a photographer into film? Did you just wake up or is it something you've always wanted to do? No, it's not something I always wanted to do. The same with still photography too. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember when I was in Weatherford College before I got hurt, I went into a computer literacy class that was a required class. And I walked in one day and we were going to learn how to set up a new thing called electronic mail, email. And we were all going to get an electronic mail account, which is what we called it in the class. I think that was the name of the class, something like very cool setting up electronic mail. So we, um, I remember sitting down in my seat and thinking, I mean, literally thinking I'm a bull rider. I don't give a crap about electronic mail. Yeah. I don't look at my real mail yeah. to today, which is such a, such a big perspective. <laughs> but, um, but the way I, I got in the video was, you know, I was of course a freelance photographer and in, in 20, in 2009, Nikon released a camera called the Nikon D90. And that was the first DSLR camera, basically a camera with a removable lens for lay people. It was the first DSLR camera that could shoot video. And it opened up a lot of capabilities that regular camcorders didn't have for a number of reasons. Right. But it, it basically improved what you could do with video. And then shortly after that, Canon started releasing all of these cameras like the Canon 7D and even Captain America, which came out around that time, they started using these little cameras some in the, in the, you know, in this huge blockbuster and other shows started using them. And I thought, wow, you know, you can really go and do a new version of storytelling with these. And it's something that I could enter because I could afford these little cameras. And so that started the transition into video. And I saw some different production companies and projects online that inspired me. Short film. And I started making short films. Uh, basically, I started selling those short films to companies. And it just progressed to where now I very rarely get hired for a photo shoot and almost everything I do is, is filmmaking. So I was an independent, like a freelancer for a while. And I realized I would need to set up a production company to really take it to the next level. Because with filmmaking, unlike photography, it's much more collaborative. Usually you can certainly go and make a short film on your own, but if you have a team of specialists, it makes it that much better. You know, if you have dedicated editors, musicians, sound designers, everything that goes into a film. And so I started Ultralight Films as a production company and we built that business. And then 1922 Films was born from the fact that um, we wanted to make a movie and for a movie, you usually create a dedicated production company for that movie, because a movie in essence is its own business. It's, it's a micro business um, or like a flashbang business. You know, you create this widget and you put it out there into the world. So we created 1922 films uh, for a movie. Very cool, very cool. So we met in Dillon, Montana. For, for people that might not know, at um, the, the health or the uh, horse, human, and nature conference uh, put on by Montana Center of Horsemanship, and they were screening at the University of Montana Western uh, your your new film, your film, and or y'all's film through 1922 called Cowboys: A Documentary Portrait, and, and and the response from the crowd I've seen it a couple of times and I love it um, was tremendous. You know, and it's raw and it's, it, it shows you the different seasons and it's just so beautiful. So, so when you created your, your, your new production company, did you know this was going to be the film? Yes. So the, the idea for the film came before the production company for sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. The, 
growing up around the cowboy lifestyle, growing up working on ranches, uh, having rodeoed, been in that culture for several years. I just hadn't really seen a documentary I thought was authentic to the working cowboy. Mm -hmm. And also something that was created that might be uh, viewable by the widespread public. You know, there's a couple super hyper authentic docs out there about cowboys, but they're more by cowboys for cowboys, more of home video type movies. Um, And so we wanted to create something super cinematic and talk to my wife about it. She was really supportive. That day it became real in my mind. The film was going to happen. Uh, Made that decision. Nothing was going to stop it uh, aside from major catastrophe. And shortly after that, I met John Langmore, uh, who's a cowboy photographer, has an amazing book called Open Range. Uh, I'd taken out an office next to him and we hit it off. And uh, when I met him, I, I, you know, I realized he's this cowboy photographer, told him the project I was working on. Well, his book, he'd been working on the, the four previous years. And he'd spent time out West in Nevada and Oregon and a few other places and had developed relationships with different ranches. And I said, well, hey, why don't we partner up on this project I'm working on? And maybe you can open up the doors to some of those ranches and he came on board and uh, a lady named Felice Tosfunke, she came on board shortly after that as our creative producer. And we basically uh, went to town or we went to the range and, and, and got started. And we filmed for the next two years and, and created the, the movie. It, it, it's absolutely beautiful. It's so real. Thank you for listening to the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show. Scott will be right back with Bud Force. For more information on Scott Knudsen, the Cowboy Entrepreneur, visit us online at cowboyentrepreneur.com. Hi, I'm Scott Knudsen, host of the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show, heard on KCAA, Wednesday, 6 p.m. Pacific. I'd like to talk to you about something I'm very passionate about. Those that know me know I love my coffee. In the morning, afternoon, and even late in the evening, I enjoy a good cup of coffee almost any time of the day. Now, my team at the Cowboy Entrepreneur Show has been working for several months on creating and introducing our own brand of coffee. We wanted to make sure that we got it just right. We don't want to put our name on anything unless we're 100% certain that it's the best product available, and we've finally done it. We have created a wonderful line of coffees, 13 fantastic flavors offered in whole bean, ground, and K-cups, any way you like to brew your coffee. Now, each of our coffees carries our brand, the very same brand that we put on our horses, our trailers, and our chaps. So you know that this is a quality product. And we only use 100% Arabica beans, the very best beans available. Just listen to some of these wonderful blends and flavors. Jamaican Me Crazy, Honduran San Marcos, Chocolate Cherry Amaretto, Breakfast Blend, and my very favorite, Haley's Blend. A coffee so good, we named it after my daughter. You can order these coffees today by going online to cowboyentrepreneur.shop. That's cowboyentrepreneur.shop. And if you order today, you can get an extra 10% off your final purchase just by entering the promo code COWBOY on checkout. Remember, that's promo code COWBOY for an extra 10% off. Just go to cowboyentrepreneur.shop to order your coffee today. When you did the film, so you, you get your partners, you, you know you're going to make this this film. You start mm-hmm. your production company. So do you kind of have it written what you're going to do or the scenes or the seasons I'm going to be at this ranch? Or how do you, for someone like me or maybe someone listening or, or watching, what's the next steps? Well, when you're making a documentary film that's not backed by a studio or any film that's not backed by a studio, the number one step is to figure out how to pay for it because it costs money so you have to get funding and that's funding and distribution fundings at the beginning distributions at the end and they're the two hardest parts making the film in the middle is kind of the easiest part and i mean it's it certainly wasn't wasn't quite as challenging so it's your passion it's your passion so that's that's the fun part yeah um we had relationships with the ranch most of the ranches prior, like I say, John had some relationships out West. Faley had some relationships on Singleton ranches and a few others. 
I had relationships with the four sixes and Tongue River Ranch here in Texas. So we kind of pooled our resources and were able to go out and film at these ranches because of course they don't just let anybody in through those gates. Right, right. Uh, there were a few ranches like Babbitt's in Arizona. We didn't really have a prior relationship, but words, it's a small community and word spread pretty quickly what we were doing. And I think folks realized our heart was in the right place. And so folks like Babbitt's, they let us on the ranch willingly and, and were super supportive and, and helped us reach our goals in making the film. That's wonderful. And, and we have the trailer and we're going to put that in the show for sure. So everybody can see the trailer and get excited. So when they want to watch the film, or, and I think everybody should, how, what's the best way for people to watch the film? Well, it's available on multiple platforms, Amazon, iTunes, uh, Apple TV, and others. So you can either go to the platforms themselves and search for it, or you can go to thecowboymovie.com okay. and get direct links to those platforms. And also, if you wanted to buy a Blu-ray or a DVD, you can do that off of the, off of the website, thecowboymovie.com. Very cool. Very cool. So what, what surprised you growing up in the industry and around cowboys, what surprised you like going into the film thinking we're going to do this ranch and this is what I'm going to see. And maybe it wasn't that way. Was there any surprises for you? Uh, really the, the biggest surprise for me was up in buckaroo culture. So in the mm -hmm. cowboy world, in the working cowboy world, and that's all this film is about, by the way, is working cowboys, not rodeo athletes, not family ranch uh, cowboys, even though they do the same work just as authentically, this film is about ranches that run full crews of horseback cowboys and the ranches themselves are massive. Some of the largest cattle operations really in the world. The smallest ranch we shot on was 187,000 acres and the largest was 1.1 million acres. But within the working cowboy world, you have two different cultures, uh, cow punchers and buckaroos. And there's a number of differences between those cultures, geographical, stylistically, mm -hmm. uh, utilitarian and how they work their cattle. But your cow punchers are from Texas, generally in New Mexico, Arizona. Your buckaroos are gonna be more Northern Nevada, Oregon, Idaho. Uh, Montana is a mixture of, of, of both, but like I say, they dress different. Uh, buckaroos, one of the most signifying differences you would see right off the bat is they wear flat brimmed hats. Usually uh, they wear chinks instead of shaps or leggings uh, down here. You know, our hats are, are curved, a little bit different stylistically. When they're branding in, in buckaroo country, they usually head and heel down here, we just heal our calves and drag them to the fire. So there's there's differences as far as that goes. But I had never spent any time whatsoever around on a buckaroo ranch, like a, a northern Nevada Great Basin buckaroo ranch. I had not stepped foot on. And so going, uh, my, man, my first ranch I went to was the YP. So going there and, and seeing real life buckaroos, so to speak, uh, in their natural environment was incredible for me. So, so awesome. So awesome. You got to experience that. So, so, so in the film, there's so many real moments that it's, it, I don't know how you could even plan the timing of it, you know, the birth of a cow and just different things like that. How did you structure it so you could get all these uh, incredible moments? We, you can write a doc as much as you want, but it's real life. So Absolutely. it's going to deviate to some extent. Um, you either going to have happy or unhappy accidents that occur while you're filming. Hopefully they lend more into your story, but you do the best you can to convey this idea that you want to portray. And so we had an idea of of, of what we wanted to show. I mean, cowboying doesn't really change from year to year. The life cycle of a ranch begins in the spring with the birth of calves or calving and, and then it goes to the fall whenever you're shipping. And then in the summer and the, and the winter is, is kind of varied work that depends on where you're located. But in the winter, you're usually gonna be feeding and in the summer moving bulls or fixing fence or what have you. 
And so we had this idea of what we wanted to show as far as the work and the life cycle of the cowboy. But we also wanted to get into the personal stories mm-hmm. of the cowboys themselves and their families. We didn't know as much of what stories were going to be conveyed because those would bloom in the interviews. Um, so we identified the cowboys we would want to work with, the ranches we would want to work with at what times in, in the year. So maybe we would want to show summer times in the heat of Arizona, but show winters in the blizzards of Montana. So that's how we scheduled everything. And, and, and then we would go out and literally document. We didn't stage. There's not a single scene in the movie that's staged outside of the interviews. And so we would go during a blizzard, for, for instance, and we would just film what was happening. And that was it. And that's how we did it. So cool. So, so I know on the ranches and being a cowboy, you, it, it's life or death. You know, it's a serious business and, and, and injuries happen. So how did you take your crew or how did y'all go out onto a ranch? Because, you know, probably the smaller the footprint, the better. Absolutely. And we definitely wanted to have a, a small footprint. So our crew was never above three people. Uh, which is uh, it's amazing seeing the film you would never think that well appreciate it Scott some of our commercial productions are upwards of 30 people Mm -hmm. Uh, some other production companies that do commercial productions they're huge right set of Yellowstone's something like 400 people lots of people can go into crews but for this as a documentary film crew to go in and authentically simply document the culture we felt like we could only have three people. When you show up to these ranches, they want to feed you sometimes. I mean, you know, they kind of take you under their wing and you don't want to be a bother. They don't want you to slow down the work they're doing. Uh, they don't want you to get hurt. But like my co-director, John Langmore always says, he says, more importantly, they don't want you to get them hurt. <laughs> it's yeah, so absolutely. <laughs> and uh, so we would show up three people, myself, John, who shot all the still photos in the film, and then I would bring a, uh, a cameraman, one of two alternating cameramen, Tito West and Hank Wiesrote, two supremely talented camera operators. We would bring one of those two with us, depending on their schedule. And so we would show up, run all audio, run all the visuals, the drones, everything ourselves, and that was our crew at any given moment. John and I, uh, John grew up cowboying in the summers of his youth. He would go out to different ranches with his dad. Of course, I grew up with my history. And so we both had a sense of livestock and how to operate around livestock. Tito and Hank didn't grow up at all around livestock. So there was a bit of a learning curve there, but they were there, you know, they're super cognizant of everything, quick studies. And they learned, okay, and we need to stay back right now, or you know, we can move forward and and all of that. Because if you if you go in and you mess up a day's work, you know, or a gather, say a three-hour gather, and they've got 500 head of of cattle, and you mess that up somehow, you're probably just going to get kicked off the ranch and not invited back. Right. Absolutely. So so what was their takeaway? Your your the Tito and your camera guys like if they've never grown up in the industry or seen anything like it to see what they were able to see firsthand. Did did it change what they thought? I think it was somewhat life changing. Um, uh-huh. Hank went on a bunch of our shoots, and he went on a wagon. Uh, Tito went on a wagon too, and Very so cool. sleeping in, in sleeping in teepees and you know, something that they didn't even realize existed. And then they're in the midst of it for a week or 10 days. Um, I think that was a huge epiphany as far as, wow, these people are, are really out here doing this. Cause you, you can hear that, that people do that. You can even kind of know that people do that, or maybe even watch a movie about it. But until you are there, waking up in Northern Nevada in the middle of nowhere, and you open up your teepee flap, and you smell that sage, you know, and you hear the spurs jingling in the morning and the cattle bawling and you can't hear anything else. It's, it's a magical moment. Absolutely. And I think it touched both of them. Yeah. It'd be hard not to. 
I, I just love it. So, so let's talk drones. So, okay. so some of the some of the scenes in the movie are just or all of them, but there was some that were just spectacular. And I, I know you, I believe you were driving the drone, if that's the correct terminology. But I think flying. Flying, flying the drone, drone. <laughs> flying the drone, so, driving it, whatever it depends. I, I, I mean, I don't know, but it was incredible. You know, it, I, you could definitely tell your horse sense because you never spooked the herd. You never, and you know how itchy they get, especially with cattle and, and horses. Absolutely, horses they can tell. Um, and how did you do that as far as with the drone to get the scenes? You have so many different animals. You know, you got the cowboys. You got your crew, you got your cattle, you got your horses, and there's nothing yeah. else. So the noise and the shadows and such. It was interesting, and, and you're right. And I'm glad you bring up the cowboys too. It's funny because depending on the ranch and the service, everybody's on Facebook these days. And so a couple of the early ranches, until I learned what to tell them before I started flying, you know, these cowboy crews trot out. And it's interesting because they'll take pictures with their phones and post them on Facebook and say, you know, we're doing it like we did in 1880 or whatever, but they're posting it on Facebook. So, Yeah, big oxymoron. So there were a couple of times where they'd be trotting out single file and I'd see those little blue screens, those little blue Facebook screens as they'd be holding their phone and trotting out. And so I had to tell them like, hey, whenever you guys are trotting out, you know, if you don't mind, just leave your phones in your pocket because it's not going to look good in this movie. No. But of course, the cattle and the horses, you have to be super cognizant about. I mean, the cowboys, too. You can't get too close. These drones, they sound like a hive of bees. And so if you get too close to the cattle, of course, you can spook them with the drone. Right. Uh, so you stay back. You just watch the cattle, watch the progression of the herd. You can see what you're filming while you're filming. So it's almost like you're looking out of a cockpit on your screen, but you can also see the drone visually. So I would have someone spot the drone and then I would look at the screen and be able to tell like, okay, we're putting too much pressure on these cattle. Let's back away a little bit. If I ever saw a cowboy look back at it, of course I would pull back. And then the horses, I would always watch their ears. And as soon as their ears would kind of, their little radars. So as soon as they would flip back, I would know, okay, you know, here's too close. too close. And some of the scenes looked so dramatic. There's a scene in the film where it's, I don't know, maybe 500 head of black Angus cattle going towards a storm with mountains in the background. And that was the first, what I thought was really beautiful scene I'd gotten with the drone and the stars all aligned with the storm and everything else. And I remember my thumbs started shaking because I didn't want to mess it up in any way. And, uh, and it made the final cut of the film, but that's basically how I would run the drone and, and try to keep from spooking the animals. But it's interesting. It depends on the animal too. You know, horses are horses. Some are going to be spooked easier than others. I did have a job a few years ago in Ireland where I'd gotten hired to go all over Ireland and, and fly and film. And sheep, uh, they're scared to death of drones. There's no getting around it. I mean, you have a drone within half a mile of a sheep and they think it's four <laughs> horsemen coming out of the sky to, to take them away. I mean, they are deathly afraid of drones. I had no idea. No <laughs> idea. There's some fun fact for you right there. Yeah. Um, for sure. So, so when you're doing it, you know, and, and what, what's it like when, when you're eating at the chuck wagon or you're, you're in the tents or you're, you're before you go in the tent, talking to the cowboys and, and you're on the ground. Can you take our audience to what it was like, you know, when the cameras are off, there's no drones. It, is it like what people see in the movies or is it just guys talking around a campfire? I mean, people are people and cowboys are humans just as much as anybody else. Um, so the conversations are just human conversations, but they primarily revolve around horses. Cowboys talk a lot about their horses. A lot. 
how the day went that day, their hardware, you know, their bits, who built your spurs, you know, I'm working on a new pair of leggings, you know, most of the conversation definitely revolves in some way around what it is you're doing. Um, the campfire deal, it's kind of interesting because on the wagon, you don't usually have a campfire unless it's the cook's fire because everybody goes to bed so early. You know, you get off work, you might get off work, you know, cowboys usually start really early. So let's say you wake up at four on the wagon. You have breakfast at five. Uh, if you eat at five, of course, everybody gets there almost an hour early to drink coffee. It's almost like you're late if you're not there an hour early. <laughs> Absolutely. You get mounted up, you go catch the horses, you get mounted up and usually right at daybreak, you're trotting out. And however big that pasture is, you know, a couple hours to gather it, let's say. You gather that pasture, you bring them in. If it's a spring wagon, you're usually branding. So then you brand, but hopefully you're finished by lunch. A lot of ranches try to finish by lunch. Uh, but if you're not, then you work until early afternoon. You may go out that afternoon and trot more on another horse and gather up another pasture so you can get started early the next day. But generally you're gonna finish between noon and early afternoon. And then after that, the cowboys go and they take care of their personal tasks, you know, shoe their horses, uh, do whatever they need to do. You eat dinner and then, or supper, and then right after supper, pretty much everybody goes to bed. I mean, really before the sun sets, usually at least in the spring on spring wagons, and so it's not like folks are sitting around a campfire in the evenings necessarily, but in the afternoons, uh, yeah, there's that camaraderie. Everyone's sitting around talking and those conversations, like I say, usually revolve in some form or fashion around the horse, even more so than the cow. Really? Horse. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I, I love that. So, so do you stay in contact with some of the people you met at, at, on the different ranches? Quite a few of them. I mean, the majority of them, really. Cool. Uh, a lot of them have become very close friends. Uh, some of them were friends beforehand. And uh, so, yes, absolutely. So did they see the film? Have they seen the film? Uh, everybody in the movie, as far as I know, has seen the film. So and What was their takeaway? Was it like, wow, that's what we looked like? Or were they kind of shocked about what they really overall, did? Overall, it's been a, a completely positive response. You right. know, I haven't, I haven't heard a single cowboy come to us and and say anything negative about the film. Only what I would consider to be genuinely positive comments. I think a lot of the folks in the film were touched by it. Mm -hmm. um, I think we tried to tell the story with a high level of respect, not just for the idea of the American cowboy, but for the individuals in the film itself right. and their unique stories depending on who they were uh, so yeah I think everyone as far as I know is has really enjoyed the film oh man I, I'll tell you what it was so fun to see them open up and talk during the interview process because you know most of them have been quiet you know they don't talk to people and and opening up once they opened up man it was so much fun to watch them and the pride they took in everything um, it was really interesting to see. Well, appreciate it, Scott. And whenever we would show up to these ranches, we were usually there a week to 10 days. Mm -hmm. And um, we would not all, always, but oftentimes try to schedule our interviews for the tail end of a trip. So you can get there and get through some of that buffer of, you know, being a new guy on the crew, basically, uh, with a camera and, and kind of get past all of that and then get to know the guys a little bit. And once they realize you're not from Hollywood and you've seen a cow before and you're not gonna jump between them and the cow, I think they have a bit of an appreciation for it. Makes sense, yeah, makes sense. And they appreciate what you did and they probably appreciate you telling their story, you know, because mm -hmm. there's so many people that don't get to see that life, not even for a day and, and they Absolutely. live it, you know. Mm -hmm. um yeah. so so what's next for you but are you working on another film i'm working on a four-part short film series right now for the four sixes ranch one of the ranches awesome. in the movie a legendary big Absolutely. outfit here in texas so 
I'm right in the midst of that and a few other commercial projects. And then we're breaking ground and in the midst of writing a new feature, a narrative feature that we hope to have finished up here in the next few years. These film projects are definitely long-term. Cowboys took six years to make, so it's a slow so it, it was worth every day. Might have not felt it during that day, but it sure was. I appreciate it, man. Absolutely. So when you're not, you know, doing photography or making films or start production companies, what do you do in your spare time if you have any? KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM.